Hi, and welcome to CauseCast. I'm your host, Matthew Passy. Here at CauseCast, we have one simple mission, to highlight the amazing folks who are using podcasts as a way to raise awareness for good causes. Whether that's a nonprofit they work with, a charity they support, a social justice campaign they're championing for, a medical condition they're battling, or someone who is just looking to make a positive impact on their local community, state, country, or the world. These are podcasters with a positive mission. Along with raising awareness for our guests' favorite causes, we're also going to see if we can raise some money to support their efforts. So make sure you check out the show notes for each episode at causecasts.org to learn more about what they're doing and how to help them achieve their goals. All right, very excited to be chatting with Matthew Zachary here of Stupid Cancer. Matt, thanks for joining me here on CauseCast. Oh, it's a pleasure. Great name, by the way. Thank you. Thank you very much. Same with you guys. I mean, a lot of people say stupid cancer. Yeah. Or maybe throw in a few expletives as well when they're trying to say that. You wouldn't get good funding. Probably with not. expletives in your name. But yes. I imagine the we, IRS doesn't think too kindly of that. No, in the you can't really trademark that stuff either. So. <laughs> so, I mean, first of all, just broad overview. What does stupid cancer do? What is the organization all about? We advocate and give voice to Gens X, Y, and Z in the cancer space. And why do we do that? Because cancer is very different when you're just getting your life started and going through it and rehabilitating from it, if most people do survive these days, comes with a moral consequence of how do you get us to become productive citizens and get our lives back. When you have 60 to 70 years left of life, getting cancer at 18 is going to be something that changes an outcome for a society than getting cancer at 80 years old. And we're not throwing old people under the bus. We love our old people. But cancer only happens one out of every 14 times under the age of 40. So it's a very small community by comparison. But we chose to focus on elevating the voice of a generation that is largely invisible in the cancer narrative. We're not the St. Jude Ball children. We're not the old lady breast cancer. It was focused on being an egalitarian way to look at generational relevancy in cancer. And it was started because I was that kid 22 years ago. I was in college, I got cancer. I was alone for so many years. I didn't really have a 20s. I deserved, who doesn't deserve to have 20s? And we've very proudly become one of the world's largest communities for the younger generations of cancer. Education, access, policy, education for doctors and nurses and social workers, connection to resources, ending isolation, improving mental health, and just to round that very long answer out, we focus very heavily on fertility rights because chemo can make you sterile. Right. Most people don't know that. And most doctors don't tell you. So we heard a guarantee a path to motherhood and fatherhood for anyone affected by cancer in their fertile years. So I want to just backtrack a little bit. You talk about some of the more unique challenges that folks in these generations face if they get cancer at a younger age. One of those being how do you sort of get back on track and have that full life that everybody deserves. So what are some of the hiccups that cancer patients struggle with in their 20s and late teens? And what do you do to sort of help them realize that you can move on from this? It's actually a fairly easy answer because just look at what it's like to be in your teens and 20s today without cancer Mm -hmm. and amplify that. Look down at my phone constantly. Yeah. (laughs) Well, going to college. Right getting a first job, entering the workplace, dating, relationships, family planning, insurance, mental health, uh, stress and anxiety, 
these things are difficult enough when you do not have a life-altering disease coming into your world. So your entitlement to get back to those normal sort of touch points in life interrupted are why it's so much more important to pay attention to those details. It's not about cure. It's about life. Because life doesn't end or start with cure. It's what you do with the time you have that you deserve to have because you didn't ask to be sick. So obviously you started this foundation and doing so from experience, what were some of the challenges when you first got started with this organization and what are some of the milestone growth points that you've had since its inception? What I'm most proud of is that 10 years ago, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, that these 1.4 million Americans that comprised what we call the young adult cancer community had no voice. They were truly invisible. And that could range from just being part of data studies, clinical trials, behavioral research, genetic testing, medical journals, nurse education, institutional best practices, standards of care, guidelines, hospital experience integrations. None of that existed 10, 12 years ago for young adults specifically. It was kids and everyone else. So the concept of age appropriateness was born to restore equity and dignity to a population that was very different and should be treated holistically, medically, allopathically very differently. Because if the goal is outcome and cure, however you define the word cure, getting someone to that finish line is very different when you're not 80. And what does that look like? Because when you're a child, you have a parent. There's a whole different level of understanding and appreciation. And you are a beautiful child that everything's gorgeous and painting rainbows. And, and you know, you have a boo-boo. But There's when you're in high school. sympathy. I yeah. imagine pediatric cancer is just a No one wants bald kids. Support. No one right. wants bald kids. Right, right. But when you're a grungy, smelly college bald kid, it has kind of a very different connotation to it visually. Right. And we represent those voices. So I look at how far we've come. Because all those things that I just said did not exist back then do exist today. So in terms of trying to give people those voices and to an extent, more importantly, give this generation that information to empower them with what you have learned and what you're trying to provide to them. Why then did you think that podcasting was a way to go about reaching them? I was more or less handed the opportunity to do it. Back then they called them live blog Something like that. You know, they weren't podcasts yet. The word cast hadn't become a thing yet. The iPhone wasn't even out yet. Like iPods were still around in 2006, 2005. So I was given a chance to do a live streaming interview platform over old school, not high speed bandwidth. It was like really, really like salad days kind of technology. And I've been an NPR wonk my whole life. I love radio. I have a background in theater. I minored in musical theater. I'm a concert pianist by trade. And I have an arts DNA inside me. And I always like... I'm the like all the world's a stage kind of person. So when I started the organization, I probably just started the organization. And a colleague of mine who was doing a terrestrial radio show on cancer was offered the opportunity to do something online. And she's like, we're happy being a terrestrial organization. Here's Matt. So she throws me to the wolf and like, I'm doing a show. All right. I guess I'm going to do a talk radio show on, on some crazy low tech thing. And this stupid cancer show was born on May 28th, 2007. And it's funny, you can go back to those days and listen to the first show and how green everything was and how exciting it was. But at that time, especially for this generational approach, there was no voice. But literally, I was a voice. The voice. 
I became, <laughs> when there's none, you're the best and the worst at what you do. So I happened to be in the right place at the right time. I took a chance, got on the stupid cancer show platform, created everything, and was able to create 408 broadcasts, winning all these awards and millions of followers and and listens on iTunes and whatnot, syndication on Block Talk Radio and iHeartRadio and Stitcher. And we didn't know back then the the potential for this. Like everyone that was on YouTube six years ago that now has 30 million followers, you didn't really know back then what YouTube would become. We didn't know. I had no idea that the show would become something so important to the community because it was a, a platform that just had never existed before. So since you started, as you said, prior to the iPhone and the first explosion of podcasts, we've had a few, quote, renaissance moments in podcasting. What changed with the show? What changed with your approach to it as the popularity of podcasts grew? Crowdsourcing. Oh, okay. And more of a two-way communications with the audience. I believe that the river should carve itself and that you don't nation build. So the young adult cancer community was bespoke by itself. We were the ones yelling and screaming that no one cares but us. Enough with the ribbons, enough with the athletes, enough with the body parts. This is an egalitarian community where the playing field is leveled when you're not 90 years old. So it went from just having really, really compelling one-to-one interviews like these with other stakeholders, other angry upstart rapscallions like myself. And it moved towards thematics, almost educational programming, where we would have an expert on fertility preservation, an expert on survivor guilt, an expert on caregiving, an expert on name your educational workshop, Mad Libs, fill in the blank. And people started to rely on the show for content before content was king. And listening to what the crowd wanted, saying, hey, who would you like to have on the show? Kind of like the call outs on YouTube these days. Old school comment below. We didn't have a comment below (laughs) back then, but it really was. Send us your feedback. Tweet us at Stupid Cancer Show. Tell us some guests. Tag people in your profile. It really became this renaissance-ish adoption of where the future was headed in social media before social media. And it was also, it sounds like it was a very democratic platform. This wasn't, Democratized. This wasn't your mic. This was the community's mic that you were just the filter. I love, I mean, it's always really good to be in person like this and having someone physically here in the studio. But we did call-ins from Skype all over the world. We had politicians and CEOs and celebrities and the president of the National Cancer Institute. Really, it became the media buy without buying media, hmm. where people just really wanted to be visible. And come on the show. We're currently moving all 406 shows to YouTube right now. So you can listen to all the archives. and We'll be tagging them on that platform because that's where people are these days. We're on SoundCloud and we're still on Stitcher and iHeart. But the whole point is it really proved that if you democratize what the patients want, you're no longer dictating what they should think they need or tell them what they need. And that to me is what young adult cancer is really all about. So the show, there haven't been just pure audio shows on the podcasting platform since 2016. You have shifted a lot to video. Any particular reason why you felt that that move was appropriate? Trends. Okay. Trends in consumption. Even though we do see a massive, we're still seeing growth in the podcast consumption Yeah, but unless you're Mark Maron or Positive America, it's very hard to do long-form podcasts these days. And we just found that there was some attrition 
to some of our other channels and social was growing. Instagram stories was becoming a thing. They just launched stories. Snapchat was heading up the charts. And we found that there was more of a direct impact to our messaging and our calls to action on those platforms. So we took a year off, did some research, talked to our community, did some surveys, audited all the shows we did in the past editorial wise, and came up with a new journalistic strategy on how is it that we as Stupid Cancer want to keep being a leader in this level of outreach and and digital and democratization. So A, the fact that we're taking all the shows and putting them on YouTube is kind of interesting because no one's really ever done that before. But at the same time, moving toward these five minute, 10 minute sort of snackable chunklet shows and then doing specialty shows and thematic shows and using playlists as patient education is a very different way to leverage YouTube without having your, my kids watch these shows. I feel like I'm the old dad now. They're watching (laughs) people play Minecraft on YouTube. Like, why would you watch someone play Minecraft on YouTube? Just play Minecraft. I I, I can top that. I was... I forgot who it was, but we're doing was the like, old, are we doing old dad moments now? Oh, this I, this is sort of old dad. I mean, my kids are too young to, for me to be old yeah. dad. They're only one, but okay. Uh, there's people who are watching people study on YouTube. What? There's a, a girl. She's just sitting there reading her books in her bedroom. She's got a YouTube camera, and people just sit there watching. I, I don't get it. And she probably has a million followers. Oh yeah, she's got sponsors knocking down the door trying to right. be her notebook of choice, be That's, her pen of choice. But yeah. To your point, right? Like I don't get it. But so the shows that I like, and again, the relevancy of if we're really trying to keep the bell curve of our crowd relevant, if we really are, and I think we're doing a really good job at maintaining a level of edginess and stickiness that is still attractive to the college student and the high school student, where we're not this old mom and pop established organization that they can't find relevancy towards and feel no association with. We are still very teen and college student heavy. YouTube is where people are watching information and content, and it's the second largest search engine. And we have a really strong brand presence. So moving there wasn't really starting from scratch because we're getting way more views on syndicated channels by sharing YouTube on social than just getting subscribers on YouTube. So it's really more qualitative than quantitative in the sense of we're seeing got thousands of people watching it on my LinkedIn channel, but that doesn't translate to subscribers on YouTube. So it's not about having a million subscribers. It's about having the right amount of people getting what they need from these videos when they need them. How do you measure that success? To your point, you said you don't see necessarily somebody watching your LinkedIn channel becoming a YouTube subscriber. So how do you then determine that those videos are working? What's the metric that's most important to you? So from a, I'm not going to answer your question yet, answer. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) We are a holistic ecosystem. Okay. All nonprofits should exist as a holistic ecosystem. Your point of entry is determined by the end user. I can't tell you whether someone's going to go to our site and join us on YouTube. They're going to download our app, become a user, and come to CancerCon. They're going to show up in a meetup and then write for our blog. It really is a choose-your-own-adventure of how you want to feel empowered through the brand. So I don't want to get caught up in what a measured success looks like when it really is more of, I learned how to talk to my children because I listened to Matt on the show with an author that wrote a book about that. Or my life changed because my wife and I went to CancerCon and we are a better couple now and can talk about our sexual health while she's dealing with ovarian cancer. So this concept of metrics in the theme of not answering your question immediately is how I tend to think about consumer experience in healthcare and cancer. You really want to have a balance of intangibles with measurables because you can't quantify how much happier you've made someone feel, whether they've watched the show or come to Cancer Conic, these touch points of our brand, even just knowing you're not alone and never doing any of them is important to lots of people. So 
but from a, a qualitative state, I tend to focus more on our surveys and our studies and our market research database and not necessarily how many people join the newsletter. We can quantify how many cancer centers we reach out to and how many nurse navigators and, and social workers we have relationships with, how many flyers and, and tchotchkes we ship out to cancer centers, what the supply chain management looks like. We know we're hitting tens of thousands of people a year, scaling every single year based on our capacity and funding to reach more young adults. We're going, we're international now, we're building a foothold in Western Europe. So reaching more and more people who need to know they're not alone and they'll figure out their entry point into here. The most measurable, I don't give short answers, by the way. That's okay. <laughs> is CancerCon. How many attendees can come? Who can afford to come? How do we make it more accessible? How do we reach different communities of color, low-income communities out there, making it more, I keep saying egalitarian because that is what we want to do. We don't say, oh, you have breast cancer. You can't come here because we're a colon cancer group. We are everybody. We're festivists for everybody that we're the cancer festivist organization. I'll just say that right here on the show. That's a great that's a great way to describe it. I also think what you're talking about is important and something that other nonprofits and charities who are thinking about using, whether it's podcasting or any digital medium, it's not just putting out content and seeing who listens, but using this medium, social media, YouTube as community building. And it seems like you do you know that, you've done an excellent job of that. And the fact that you're able to put on events and bring people together more than just talk at them, have a conversation with them seems to be what is a big factor in your success. That is nearly verbatim on our market research studies. I did not see that in advance for the record. <laughs> we actually go out there again. It is a two-way listening experiment with our audience because we need they help carve the river for us. We don't just say, we're doing this. We say, what do you think? One of the IRB-approved peer-reviewed published journal studies we did with a poster, which was extraordinary, with our research team, which is like our board of directors and advisors, asked the community, how do you feel about research and being asked questions? And they said exactly what you said. They don't want to be spoken with, they want to be spoken to. And they don't want research done on them, they want research done with them. And it really was a transparent aha moment on we're doing something right by accident, but now we know that the trajectory and the weather vane is pointing in this direction and we're going to keep pursuing that. Having that two-way street and allowing people to choose their own adventure should be at the heart of how every community building nonprofit organization should live. Very good. So there was something else that you brought up previously and now I'm blanking. I wish I was taking notes, but I'm too fascinated to, <laughs> to turn away and start writing stuff down. Well, let me go back to 400 shows. And I know you've been producing a lot of content since then. And you talked about talking to nurses and educators and patients. Is there an episode, a moment, an interview, something that stands out as completely unforgettable to you that you're I'm already giggling lives? on the radio. <laughs> you are obviously changing lives. But was there something that episode you did that dramatically changed your life even more so in these years? I wouldn't say changed my life. I would say the most memorable episode was one we did on mindful meditation. Okay. And we had a gentleman on Skype, video Skype, even though it was audio. And during one of the conversations, he whipped out a Tibetan prayer bowl. Okay. And he started, you scrape the sides with like a little soft brush and it makes that ooh, like a ghost sound. Mm -hmm. And we lost, can I curse? Yeah, please. We lost our shit. There were three <laughs> of us in the room co-producing the show with this guy. And we didn't expect this. We're having a really interesting conversation on mindful meditation and mental health and balancing out stress and anxiety. And all of a sudden, <laughs> comes on that like a Tibetan prayer bowl episode was the most memorable show we'd ever done because it was the most unexpected thing that could have ever happened. Wow. When the movie 
came out. The yep. Seth Rogen, Will Reiser film came out. We did a show with them. Okay. I think that show was a watershed moment in pop culture because it really did put a face on cancer when you're not 80. And they lived and didn't die. Mm-hmm. Unlike Shirley MacLaine and Deborah Winger, where you just died from cancer in the worst tragic movie ever. And that show was really important to us. Very memorable to have that voice amplifying our purpose, our mission, and validating why we need to exist. Very cool. I imagine they were super nice and very fun to hang out with Real as people. Well. Real people. Will actually came to CancerCon in 2012 in Las Vegas and was on stage with me and my radio co-host at the time, Lisa, and was just so earnest and honest and fantastic about what he didn't expect the reception of the movie to be. He was just writing the story of his life through a comedic lens with Seth. And it was, I keep saying watershed, it really was. It game-changed public perception of the value of us being a true nonprofit organization in the cancer space. So one thing I, I do want to ask you about, because obviously, you know, we're sitting here in a really great looking studio space, good microphones. You've got the camera set up, the mixer over there. This is a high quality production that you have. But for a lot of nonprofits, a lot of causes, it's just not in their budget. It just doesn't exist. They recognize the importance of being on these platforms, but to produce it at this quality is difficult. So what's your advice to those starting out, thinking about starting out? Do you think that the podcast is still a good low barrier entry way to go just to at least start getting the message out there? Everything starts with relationships. Don't do something because you think you have to. Listen to your relationships. And I'm not going to say the funding will start coming, but this organization for the first six years had no budget. I didn't bring on a second employee until probably four years in. Wow. We're 11 years old and everyone thinks we're like an overnight success that started 11 years ago. All right. All (laughs) So this has been a work in progress to get to this point. And again, I'm always glad that we didn't start today because there's too much to choose from and a lot of competitive technologies to work with other people on. We just happened to be started at the right time when nothing existed and we could pioneer anything that showed up. And over the course of time, the industry, our funders, our donor supporters, corporations saw value in what we brought to the market. And we weren't racing for cures and funding research and selling pink blenders and doing all these kumbaya things. We were doing tangibly innovative programs and services that matter to what they believe their values were in sync with ours. And they've all done audio shows with us. We've done sponsored podcasts in the past. And I said, hey, look, we're up on our game. We're building on our success and we're converting all of this to a professional TV studio. How'd you like to support that? And they said, sure. But relationships are what built those conversations. What made those conversions happen is relationships. So build your value first from a minimally viable project and then see how relationships find value in what you are important and vice versa. And I'm not a great development person, but I'm a good salesman in terms of what we're trying to accomplish as a mission and why it's important. People will believe in you if you provide them a reason to. And relationships will coalesce that into something meaningful. But it takes, and it sucks, to the nonprofit people out there. I have all the empathy and the sympathy in the world. It just takes time. I mean, all good things too. Every overnight success was, like I said, yeah, 11 They're years. Around 10 years before yeah. anybody really knew about them. They're just, but well, it, it really was a very compelling use of our partnerships and our friendships with funders, whether it's a corporation, a Fortune 500 company, a bank, a lawyer, a law firm, pharma companies, individuals, whatever it was, we need to up our game and do this now to reach more people and exponentially increase our impact and our reach. Will you support it? Yes. So we built the studio. It's a work in progress. We have a lot more cool things to happen. We're building in more lights and better <laughs> microphones. And we're going to do hiring a production assistant to do like we have. We have three cameras, which you can't see right now on the radio here, but we're going to do multi-view shots and do Skype integrations and add other co-hosts and different different guests and different shows. So really building a media channel 
through this room. And I, to your point earlier, sort of egalitarian democratization, like turning this over, you're going to turn this over to more of the members, to the community, to be able to use it in ways that they think would be beneficial to the cause? I think there is a lot of missed opportunity by not capturing organic media. And there are so many incredible stories out there, even if it's a two-minute selfie video that you send to us that we could show on our show in a PIP and throw that up on our channel. Giving a new way to, it's not some blog post somewhere that just lives and dies nowhere on Medium. It's true enduring content with voice and purpose out there. Getting more crowdsourcing, like where it all started, crowdsourcing. What would you like us to talk about? Send us your videos of what's important to you and we'll throw them up on the web and show the world what we want. That is what is going to be the future of this platform. I also imagine that with the community that you're dealing with and we're focusing on lives. We're focusing on what happens from the start of this diagnosis to the treatment to moving on and getting past it. But I imagine there's also still a lot of hardship that you deal with and a lot of tough moments. How do you push through? How do you sort of recognize that and still give people so much hope and so much empowerment to have a full, successful life? So I quote Tony Stark from Iron Man 2. Whoever wrote this part of the script gets props. (laughs) This work is a terrible privilege because you have to face the real world more often than you want. And as much as you want to be innovative and inspirational and connective and supportive and global, people die every day. We lose children, we lose young adults, we lose family and friends and sisters and parents every single day. So there is a managed morbidity to everything we have to balance every single moment. And that doesn't mean we shy away from it or pretend it doesn't exist. We have done shows on grief and loss, bereavement, end of life, metastatic cancer, fear and anxiety over your last days on earth. What's it like to watch someone die? What's it like to go to a cancer funeral when you just got married the week before, dying while pregnant? These are true, honest, raw, real things that are living and breathing in our DNA all day. And how do you not ignore them, but how do you leverage them to keep moving forward and give people the hope that they need at any moment's time? Terrible privilege. Terrible privilege. It's a great way to put it. Well, I mean, it's a phenomenal organization. It's phenomenal work that you're doing. When I put the word out there that I was looking for people in this space of cause-based digital media production, your name came up several times. (laughs) So they were all on payroll. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, then everybody earned their keep this yes, week. Yes. Good. Good. Um, but yeah, the name came up several times. The organization, it's doing incredible work. I think your approach to this, your thinking about this, is something that we can all learn from, whether we're doing cause related work or anything else. The, the importance of relationships and giving that platform over to your audience and letting them, as you said, let them shape the river. Yeah. So I think there's something we can definitely all learn from. And so as with everything else, we are going to have a fundraising page set up so that folks who are listening to this who want to support a great organization, stupidcancer.org, they can give money and they can help you with what you're trying to do and what your future missions are. And in the meantime, go over to stupidcancer.org, learn more, download the app, whatever touch point you think is appropriate appropriate to you please yep. get uh, get involved somehow choose your own adventure choose your own adventure and it's the club no one asked to join but once you hear your family nice and and matt i just want to thank you so much for inviting me into this beautiful studio and for sharing the story here on causecast it's been it's been a pleasure man thank you that we're was... shaking hands on the radio <laughs> goodbye folks Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Causecast. Again, if you've been inspired by the work of our guest, please check out the show notes in your podcast app or head to causecast.org. There you will find links to the work of our guest and a special donation link set up to support their favorite cause. 
All the proceeds are going directly to that cause, minus any administration fee on the platform that they set up. None of the money is coming here to the CauseCast production. Also, while you're at CauseCast.org, make sure you follow and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you enjoy your podcast show. And follow us on social media as we'll try to provide updates with what's going on with our guests and some other folks who will be featuring on the show and any other efforts that we have to support the community of cause casters that are out there now there's also going to be a special facebook group dedicated to cause casters so if you already have a podcast for a cause or you're thinking about launching one join the group it'll be dedicated to providing resources and answering questions specifically for cause casters hopefully we can do things like arrange some special non-profit pricing of various podcast services to help you with your venture and you know keep you under budget because we know a lot of people doing cause casts are not going to be reaping in the the money so we want to see what we can do to help you produce a high quality product get your story out there get people inspired and not break the bank lastly if you are a cause caster and want to join me here on the show for an interview please head to causecast.org and fill out the interview request form we'll take a quick look at it and if approved we'll schedule you for chat and show the amazing work you're doing with causecast raise some awareness for what you're doing and ideally raise some money as well thank you so much again for staying with me and we will see you next time on cause casts 